1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary.
2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with radio producer Roman Mars about his design podcast, 99% Invisible, about creating new work in an old medium, and about the intimacy of radio. When you talk to someone and reach into someone's brain through sound, it just works. A lot of it is just getting out of the way and allowing that connection to happen.
0: Here's Debbie Millman Design is everywhere especially in the places where we don't look. That's according to the radio show 99% Invisible. Each week, the show explores design, architecture, and the invisible activity that shapes our world. It is produced by a powerfully named radio producer called Roman Mars. Here's a sampler of recent subjects on the show. Vulcanite dentures, senate bathrooms, design for the deaf, and the logic behind queuing up. Eclectic subject matter from an eclectic man. Roman Mars, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be here.
0: So, is it true that you went to college at 15 to study population genetics with a specialty in corn?
2: <laughs> um, it's not true that I went to college to study population genetics. I went to college at to 15. To study corn. That is true. <laughs> but I just went to be in college. I wanted to be in college very badly. And then I always wanted to do science. And uh, later on, I found genetics. And it just so happened that the specialist who studied genetics uh, at Oberlin was a plant biologist. So I began to study plants. And then I went to try to get my PhD in plant population genetics after that. And then I discovered transposable elements in maize. And then I, that, that was it.
0: <laughs> it. It hooked you. So, was Dookie Hauser originally based on you? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Not at all. Doogie Hauser predates me. <laughs> so why were you so desperate to go to college at, at 15?
2: I just uh, high school and the normal uh, way things were in my life where it was not something I was just a, I wasn't really into it, but I loved learning stuff and I love reading and I love all that sort of stuff, but for some reason I I was a, one of these kids that from, you know, age 10 on was researching colleges of places I wanted to go and for some reason I just had in my head that college was the place I would be happiest and I was totally right (laughs) I was in fact I was so happy with it I decided to go to grad school even though I uh, didn't finish grad school but I wanted to just keep going to college essentially
0: so how on earth did you go from population genetics to radio
2: I was just one of those really insane public radio fans which is usually how a lot of the producers start I listened to a lot of it when I was working in labs and, and various other parts of my, my life and I uh was listening to this program Talk of the Nation and at the time Ray Suarez was the host of Talk of the Nation and he was so good at that show. And uh it was during the Monica Lewinsky Clinton, you know, debacle. Yes and there was a uh episode about heroes and how if the president isn't a hero, like who is a hero in modern society? And somebody called in and said, you know what, Ray Suarez, you're my hero. And I remember thinking, I was at, you know, at the at work or something thinking, you know what, Ray Suarez is my hero too. It's <laughs> like, I want to go work for Ray Suarez. That would be the perfect job instead of, you know, the the big problems I had, with population genetics was I studied one thing only, you know, I studied corn genetics, like exclusively. And I thought the perfect job would be reading books for Ray Suarez and telling him what questions to ask. So I just made it my mission to go do that. So I applied for every type of internship that you can apply for national shows, but I had no journalism background and I got rejected for all of them until finally uh, a station that didn't have a formal like internship process, a so kind of a, a smaller station in San Francisco, KALW, let me come in after I just wrote him a letter saying I would, I would learn anything, I would do anything, and I taught myself Pro Tools. And then I, I went in there and I just never left. I kept on finding work and making a little bit of a living until I got my first you know, paying job at WBEZ in Chicago.
0: So what made you decide to stop going to grad school?
2: It just wasn't, there's a difference between loving science and being a scientist. And I love to learn science. I love to read about it, and I love to know things. But to be a scientist, you have to value discovering things more than just learning about them. And those are completely the same value to me. If I read about it or discover it on my own, it's all the same to me. I just like accumulating knowledge and so if you don't have that drive and you're just as content to read other people's research papers and discuss them then you're not meant to be a lab researcher
0: so you love the process of learning more than the process of discovering necessarily
2: yeah and i just didn't have that discipline to be a really good lab researcher and I was always just someone that was like you know damn the torpedoes let's just forge ahead <laughs> and, <laughs> and I knew I liked the teaching and I knew I liked the other stuff but as soon as that stuff was gone it just uh, being a scientist didn't appeal to me and I had just so many other interests I was super into music and to movies and to um, I would worked with bands in Athens Georgia where I was going to graduate school and and I just uh, felt like it wasn't the life for me.
0: What bands in Athens Georgia were you working with?
2: I'd helped start the first Athens film festival. And so I booked bands for the parties and stuff like that. And then I had seen a friend of a friend's band named Aviso play and I became a huge fan of them and became their manager and then I eventually uh, absconded with their lead singer and married her.
0: I saw some of the pictures online; they're really fabulous. She's she's beautiful. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting because your shows now ninety nine percent invisible are so musical that as I was going through all of the archives and even the shows that you produced prior to ninety nine percent invisible, they have such a musicality to them that I I couldn't help but wonder if at any point in your life you wanted to be a musician.
2: I mean, I like playing music. I was never very good at it. And I never played, you know, in a band like officially. But I just, I'm a, my life, my early life, my, my sort of uh, teenage years and everything was just, my whole identity was around music. I love music. I still do, although it's been, I don't listen to music as, purely anymore now i listen to music of like oh that would be really good bed music for my next radio piece (laughs) and so everything has been slightly tainted by it having some kind of purpose whereas before it didn't have a purpose other than just to make me happy
0: over the last week, I've been re-listening to a lot of your earlier shows from 99% Invisible. And it occurred to me that if you took the vocals off of your shows, they'd be really, really wonderful musical experiences in and of themselves.
2: Well, thank you. I mean, that's, a, that's part of the goal is to make it be like a song and have some repeatability They're produced pretty densely, and I recognize that you might not get all the information the first time through. So I have to make it pleasurable to listen to it, you know, one or two more times.
0: The first time I saw Magnolia, I read that Paul Thomas Anderson actually was... Really trying to make an opera. And that's the only movie that I was thinking could very easily sit next to a 99% Invisible episode because there is that same musicality. But before we talk any more about 99% Invisible, I want to talk a little bit about your path to 99% Invisible. And I want to start back in 2004 when you became the producer of Invisible Inc. This was a show featuring stories and commentaries from local independent and underground press. And I read a lot about whether the show itself was a zine or if you were writing a show for zines. And I wanted to ask you, what would you consider Invisible Ink to have been? A show about zines or actually a zine itself?
2: I really thought of it or I conceived it as a zine itself. So it was a, basically an audio zine that pulled from paper zines to get the stories and to sort of hear from those people who I felt were either you know unpublished or underpublished but i liked the idea that i was handcrafting like it was a personal project and that you were seeing the same you know staples and stolen copies from kinkos and you know, like <laughs> you know you were see you were sort of hearing the audio equivalent of that type of personal crafting But it's also like because I read and subscribed to tons of those zines.
0: So when you were producing Invisible Inc., you stated that zines and public radio are a natural fit. Zines are publications done for the love of doing them, not to make a profit. Most people involved lose money and volunteer their time. A good zine and a successful radio story share the same feeling of connection between the author and the audience. And I'm wondering how you create that connection between the author or any guest for that matter and your audience.
2: A little bit is just getting them everyone comfortable to feeling like you're part of this conversation that's intimate instead of something that takes place on stage or um, you're not shouting out. I like the inside of the head type of voice. You know, that comes something something as simple as um, something technical like micing. You know, there's a way that you mic really close versus the way that the BBC, for example, mics someone is like a, there's sort of a foot away from the microphone and they'll, they'll sort of, they're announcing like, and today we have, you know, they're much more shouty. <laughs> and <the mic> is <laughs> I like farther the way you away. just switched
0: into that voice. That was pretty good.
2: <laughs> so that's just one thing I think about sound design and, and technical stuff quite a bit. And the other thing is, is just getting people to talk normally or to f- fake it when you, when they can't. It's really hard to tell a good story. I I think it does take a certain skill. And I'm often asked to comment on whether or not architects are good or bad at telling stories about architecture. And the truth of the matter is that everyone's a little bit bad at telling stories about themselves. It's hard. It takes a certain skill.
0: What type of skill is required to be able to tell a good, authentic story?
2: Part of it is, it's like, you basically have to take your sincerity and the things that you feel and deconstruct it and reorder it and circle all the way back to getting back to that original sincerity <laughs> and the thing that you felt in the beginning that compelled you to tell a story. And all of that process is very technical and very, um, it, it in the process, like I will talk to someone who's inherently interesting And by the time I I take it and I take it apart, I've made it so boring, you know, like in the process of it, it's just terrible and and dry. and, And that's the doldrum of the peacemaking process until you reconstruct it to kind of tell it and have it give it some force and put the music behind it to get it back to kind of what it was that excited me in the first place.
0: So you talk about how you take something that started out interesting and then you deconstruct it so that it's really boring. How do you go about doing something like that? What is the process in taking something that might have had its own sort of circuitous intention and then becomes very sort of laid out and dry and boring?
2: It's just, you know, you you interview someone and you try to get all the details so that when you're filling in the gaps in whatever it is they're saying, that you want to make sure that those are actually present and isn't just your mind, you know, bridging those things. Like as the as the person recording, you know, like you can miss these transitions and not realize until later that you don't have them. So you have to go and ask them again and do it again. And then you have it all laid out and you have like an hour or, or something of tape for something that's going to be, you know, four and a half or five minutes long. And then when you get it, it's just sort of like... You, there's things that you feel like you need to tell, you know, like the background and, and things you feel like you want to tell. And then you have to wait those and figure out which was more important and then figure out how to take away from them that you can tell more succinctly. And, you know, and just that process, it's so painful, <laughs> but I, I really do love it.
0: So would you say that there's a bit of a, a formula to the way that you organize and construct your storytelling?
2: A little bit. I, I make this joke that the show is um, two anecdotes, one big idea, one takeaway fact, and it has to be funny. That's sort of how I construct a, an episode 90 percent Invisible. And because the podcast can be a little bit longer than the four and a half minute version that is slotted into morning edition here in San Francisco, I can have three anecdotes. Y- you know, where the formula is bad is where you start to hear it. If you hear it in the show, and the, the shows sound the same, and I think that I'm I'm good enough to make that not apparent. But the takeaway fact sort of thing is a big deal because it's this sort of thing that when you when you leave the story, it's the thing that you want to tell someone that I just learned that you know whatever that Wendy's was the inventor of the single serpentine cue, <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you know, like that's the thing that I always like to have in there. That if I were telling sort of an emotional story, that's not a requirement, but it's a requirement for this show. It just I, I like those little bits of fact that just are, are intriguing and fun.
0: Now, what made you decide to start 99% Invisible and why the word invisible again? Is that just one of your favorite <laughs> words?
2: <laughs> well, it's it started as a project because I was doing some work helping on the first the launch of a news program at KLW And the general manager of KLW was friends with the executive director of the American Institute of Architects, San Francisco chapter, Margie O'Driscoll. And they had asked me, because I often sort of work on shows when they're beginning and help sound design and sort of imagine shows when they start. And they asked me, well, what are we thinking about doing kind of an architecture minute to fit in the breaks of Morning Edition? What do you think of what we could do with that? And so I thought about it. A lot and came to them and after I met with various people instead of doing what I would normally do which is sort of get that sort of thing started and and find them someone to do it you know like hire someone to do it I was so intrigued by the idea of presenting architecture and design on the radio in this way that I just thought oh this is mine I want to do it so I talked to KLW into um, instead of making it a minute making it four and a half to fit it just I, I just felt like you can't love a minute. I wanted to make something that somebody loved. And so it would have to be at least four minutes. <laughs> and then I was at this sort of first meeting that the AIA had put together to help consult various ideas for the first pilot set of shows and things. And I'd asked them, like I was coming up with a name and I it was having a hard time. And I'd asked them, was there something unifying about the way that they operated. You know, so I had an industrial designer and I had an architect, an engineer and a landscape architect and various other people there. Is there something that, that you do? And people talk about, well, they they express an idea and then they test it and they cycle it and they various other things like that. And this landscape architect here in San Francisco, Gary Strang, brought out Bruce Mao's book, Massive Change. And he was reading through the intro and he comes across the thing that's a sort of a takeoff of Buckminster Fuller. That's the 99% invisible activity that shapes the world. And I was like, boom, we have it. That's it. I got it. And later on, John Edson, who later sponsored the show with his company, Lunar, you know, he's like, that is the fastest decision I've ever seen, you know, <laughs> you know like out of a brainstorming session. But I just knew it. I knew the invisible thing was just a sort of funny thing to me. No one else knew that. And I just thought it. it's something that, was evocative and it captured the idea of what I wanted to get at, which is this sort of wonder and mystery behind this thing that, y- you know, you shouldn't be noticing.
0: And yet they're all things that we all experience experience and and fundamentally understand as part of our subconscious which is yeah what i find so fascinating um the only issue that i have with your show roman is that it's so short <laughs> and I'm, I'm, i imagine that you hear that a lot i, I feel like i'm yes. sort of just getting into hearing it and it's five minutes and it's over i love the shows that go 11 minutes
2: well the first the mandate initially was fill the what's called the c block of morning edition which is a four and a half minutes long but very quickly, when it found an audience online, I began to think, "Well, I have so much extra tape, and I probably have a longer version in there somewhere." So I began to pare it down, and then I kind of freeze a, a slightly longer version, and that's the one I release as a podcast. And now the divergence is pretty strong; like they're they're almost the podcast versions are almost always you know eight or nine minutes long, but I do like it short. I don't know if the way that I talk and deal with subjects, I I don't know if I would want it to be an hour, which is the general unit. If you get above a module, you have to fill an hour every week. And I just don't, no. So when people say, like, I want you to, you know, get support so that you can make a full-length radio show, I always just say, it is full-length, it's just short. <laughs>
0: well, it's certainly doing a lot of things right. 99% Invisible recently reached number two in the iTunes rankings for all podcasts, and there's millions of them now, as well as number one in both the arts and design categories. Not not that I look at them that often. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> and for quite some time around the holidays, the show beat out The Moth and Ed talks in best art and design categories, and and that was quite a feat. Did that surprise you?
2: Oh yeah, but that was I was on Radio Lab, and that was like they're a powerhouse. I mean, th- thankfully, I've been able to sustain it pretty well. But that was the big push, and I had already had you know forty some episodes to download. So when people discovered it for the first time, when the Radio Lab people discovered it, they went and grabbed all of them
0: well it gave all of us that create design podcasts quite a lot of aspirational hope (laughs) (laughs) um i read that you said it's taken you about 10 years of trial and error in radio land to come up with a feeling of actually getting it and i'm wondering if you Mm -hmm. can elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by that what do you mean by getting it
2: this is something that um Ira Glass is a really eloquent thing about this that is circled around YouTube and is presented in various different ways. But there's this lag time between what you imagine you can do in a story and what you can actually do. And m- mine just felt that long. You know, I did the show, Invisible Inc., really early in that process. And what saved me was I relied on other people's stories to tell. So I knew that their material was good. And if I just didn't screw it up, it would, the show would be okay. But this sort of process now where I'm, you know, writing and hosting and doing all this stuff and the show is much more of my creation in that way. It takes a long time to kind of recognize the things you like about other people people's work and kind of steal the best parts and and sort of uh put in a bit of yourself and 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 be confident that if you're going to overreach and 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 do a, a joke or a, show a bit of your personality that it's the right amount and the right thing to do and and all that stuff is it, it took me a long time just to feel comfortable with that a lot of it, I spent many years at this project called the Third Coast International Audio Festival at WBEZ in Chicago. And my job there was listening to radio documentaries. I listened to hundreds a year. And that was like my graduate school in radio, because I was able to absorb so many different sort of ideas and, you know, European radio makers, and Australian radio makers, and and then the various stuff that was happening at BEZ, because This American Life was there at the time. And, you know, Radio Lab was just getting going and You know, I I felt like I was able to like study and figure out how I liked to hear other people present and just form it all into this thing that I could use to express my own voice.
0: Would you be able to consciously point out what you learn from various other shows or other producers? If I were to ask you, well, what did you learn most or best from Ira Glass? What would you say?
2: Well, I mean, for, for Ira is fundamental in changing the way people talked on the radio, which is like, the, he's kind of the only reason why I could have my voice on the radio in a lot of ways. And I think what you learn from Ira's show is that what a listener thinks makes a good This American Life story and what they put into it to make it a good This American Life story are, are very different things. In so what that, way can you... So that you... emotional response that you have and, and you think, oh my... that reminds me of my grandmother. My grandmother had this great story or something like that. That's not what they're doing. They're very strict about the story and the propulsion of a story and plot points. And it's just that overall emotion that makes you think that's this American Life story. But the mechanics of it are very strict and they're very dedicated to story. And I think that being able to pull that apart from the emotional response you have from a story and realizing what's the thing that makes it click, that was something that was... I really enjoyed discovering about them. I mean, with Radiolab, Jad and Robert, the way that they take something that could be very dry for some people, science isn't dry to me at all, but, but they take curiosity and ideas and infuse it with emotion, but they also use the dialogue style, the Socratic dialogue of two people talking about something to bring out an idea was hugely revolutionary. It was just, it's so great that it propels it and creates something active in your ear so that what would be really boring as a monologue is presented in a very interesting way. And a lot of people have sort of taken this on. So like uh, Planet Money does this pretty well. And, And since I'm one person, I can't have that dialogue. But what I do is I fake it with the people. So like I have a guest and I sort of break in And complete their thoughts and answer back and respond as if we're telling the story together. I'm a big fan of a fellow named Benjamin Walker who has a show on WFMU called Too Much Information. And the way that he's like able to present, like he's really occupied with comics and photography. Yes. And he presents a lot of comics and photography on the air, which is like that's a real challenge to do on the radio and the way that he is able to tell stories and appreciate it. And you can sort of get that feeling of those different media on a radio program was, is super inspiring to me. And then there's like Nate DeMeo, his sort of intimacy that he presents uh, the memory palace, this, this short form history podcast. That's really beautiful and lovely. I mean, that's sort of, that's the proto version of my this later show, this 99% invisible. So like I, I take from all of those people, but, what I don't want it to come off as is that, that that calculation, it doesn't mean that it isn't like a sort of expression of me in some way. That is an expression of me. It's like taking these things and then through those people's influence, I was able to find a voice and present something that I was proud of.
0: Why do you think that people are so... Um, interested in stories right now. You hear about storytelling everywhere. You hear it in advertising and you hear it in marketing yeah. and you hear it online. Everywhere you go, it's about telling a story and a personal narrative. And I'm wondering if, if you think that there's a, a particular cultural reason why this is something that people are talking about so much now.
2: I guess the thing is with me is, is that stories are super satisfying. I think that narratives are what you naturally do in your brain. I mean, that's the whole... Process of myth making is that you are trying to assign a narrative to something that is a series of coincidences. So I think it's a natural part of the human brain, and that tapping into that is important. Why everyone talks about storytelling, I think it's because there's a little bit of just fashion in it, and there's a little bit of kind of voodoo in the magic of it, and everyone wants to be kind of a storyteller because. It's, you know, like being a producer in Hollywood or being an ad person or being a whatever. It just like, it makes you feel like you're doing something important because stories are so important.
0: Roman, your official bio states that before going rogue, you spent over three years at WBEZ's Third Coast International Audio Festival as the project's senior producer and sound designer. And you also produced the TCF National Broadcast Specials for Public Radio International. And I can't help but wonder what you mean by going rogue. What what was that about?
2: Uh, Before being co-opted by Sarah Palin, uh, my idea of it was just really going independent. Instead of being a staffer at a station, I began to work for any number of people doing any number of projects. And often... In this time period, I began working on a lot of pilots for shows, so I would get to know people through my time at Third Coast because there's a yearly conference, or there was a yearly conference, now it's a every other year. So I got to know a number of people. And so when they found out I left Third Coast and I was back in San Francisco, they would you know ask me to do a piece. I'm working on a pilot. Could you work on a piece? Or I'm, could you listen to this show and tell me what you think? And so that was my main job as an independent. I I rarely did the thing that most independent producers do, which is pitch stories to big national programs. I I just was never good at that. I always liked to launch radio shows and to work on long-term contracts and projects. You've
0: stated that public radio has become synonymous with news and it doesn't have to be. And you also said that, public radio is against joy and that has <laughs> and that it's become a straitjacket against creativity. And those are really strong words. So I want to talk to you about that sort of <laughs> sense of joylessness and the straitjacket against creativity. And- well,
2: I mean, rhetorically, those are a little overreaching and I totally admit that. Um, public radio is a thing I love with all my heart. I mean, I've devoted so much to it. I listen to hours and hours of it a day. So much like A family member, like I'm the most critical, you know, and the most loving. So, what's missing in that is how much I love it. And the thing is, is sort of like NPR has become synonymous with news and NPR has become synonymous with public radio, but I don't think all of public radio needs to be news. And so, that is the thing that I want to make sure that in the tiny corners that I occupy or that I have influence over, that you know, joy is represented in drama and pleasure, and you know, musicality and sound and the use of sound. That it isn't just a conveyance of information of the day. You know, it, there's a different kind of style that's developed over time, where they're more of a news organization and more of a breaking news organization. They were always an analytical news organization. They were always they reacted to the news of the you know of the paper or of tv for in, the, in their first existence but now they have bureaus everywhere and they're the they're first class frontline journalists but in that process you lose some of the flavor of what makes radio so evocative and so beautiful to me which is the use of sound and the type of stories and using music in certain ways and just using the medium like being what i would call radiophonic that something is made just for radio to exist in radio and when I say radio here I mean any you know any audio thing cuz I, I don't I don't think podcasting is a lesser form or anything like that. It's just that you know I just like that use of radio. And so I never want it to be taken over completely by the news. I believe the mission of public radio is to present our best selves and to have this little part of the dial that represents like the greatness of humanity in some ways. Not to overstate it, but that includes art and that includes expression and joy and fun and not just news and information.
0: I find it so interesting when people talk about the future of any particular medium and the fear that people have when technology changes. People are talking quite a lot in the design and publishing and literary fields about the possibility that books are going to go away. And one of the, I think, knee-jerk reactions or answers to that is how people talk about radio not having gone away despite all of the new technologies that have come forth since radio began, which is really the oldest technological medium Mm -hmm. in the category. And I think that technology helps to make these mediums better. The more ability we have to create these venues for expression, the better they can get. And I'm wondering what it's like for you as a producer to craft a new show in this very old medium.
2: The main thing that when I work on new shows is that because the means of production, it's so much easier, the equipment is cheaper, the distribution is cheaper, but also the rewards are are minimal, like the potential rewards are still very minimal, that you have to just do what is best and what you feel and what you want to do the most. So I was working with this program called The Sound of Young America, and they were transitioning to be the program Bullseye. And the fellow in charge there, Jesse Thorne's really talented. And the issue that, and what we sort of worked with when I was working with him, was this idea that, you know, he just kind of started the program when he was a teenager, really. He was in college. It's been going for 10 years. And he didn't know why he was doing the things he was doing. Like he couldn't remember the decisions or why the decisions were made or whatever. And so my job in that situation is just to sort of bring out what they love about what they're doing. And if you can translate that love, which I I think that that's the key to what makes radio great, is you can hear it in the voice and you can hear it in the way that it's crafted, that it really can be a labor of love of a single person. And it's transmitted through that medium, I think particularly clearly. And that is the part that I'm always trying to get to when I work on something new, a new show or my own thing. And so... That is a part of radio I love, and that never gets old for me. There's not many new ways you can make new sounds, and there's occasional leaps in how documentaries are done, and you can see these punctuations. You can see the punctuation of, of Ira Glass in This American Life, and you can see the punctuation of Ghetto Life 101 by Dave Isay, and you can see the punctuation of JAD and, and Radiolab and see how they change things. They change the style and the, the meter of radio. But fundamentally, they get to this point of like, when you talk to someone and reach into someone's brain through sound, it just works. A lot of it is just getting out of the way and allowing that connection to happen.
0: I also want to talk to you about Public Radio Remix. Um, You were hired to curate, organize, and solicit the mix of audio and produced work on Remix. So what exactly is PRX?
2: Well, PRX itself is an independent marketplace for selling public radio stories as an independent. So you put yourself on PRX, PRX.org, and stations will license it. So this project, Public Radio Remix, is a project that um, they had a little bit of money to sort of create a stream online of a lot of this content that was up on PRX.org and maybe some other material like podcasts or um you know, various music and stuff. And so they had asked me to put that together as an online stream. And so it's just this 24-hour formatless format of kind of what you'd think of as the format of a music station, just song after song with a little bit of interruption with a DJ. But instead of songs, it's stories. It's public radio stories from the past and from sort of new voices and then some podcasts and then sort of random sounds and found tape that I find interesting and various stuff like that. So it's this 24 hour stream and it grew from being an online thing to being offered on XM radio. So it's on XM one, two, three, and it's uh, now offered to terrestrial public radio stations. So they'll play it either 24 hours a day on some of their extra channels or overnight. And it's just this it's really kind of a free for all. It's a chaos that I think a beautiful chaos of stories.
0: Yeah. It seems like you really are attracted to chaos and breaking formats. Oh, totally. I think it's the
2: way that people use radio. I mean, if to me, it's like, I'm really into the intentionality of what you create. And so, you know, a podcast or radio show is one thing. A radio stream is something completely different. A stream is about stepping in and sampling and having it move on and if you don't like it, just wait for the next thing or turn it off and jump in somewhere else. Like it doesn't have to start at the top of the hour. It doesn't have to be, you know, forced into this magazine style format of like an All Things Considered or, or Morning Edition. I just don't think that's the way that streams are most effective. And so the whole idea of this is that you do not know what's coming next. And it's about surprise and presenting radio stories in, in, a, in a different way.
0: I think that in many ways, you just described 99% invisible in terms of the variety of subjects that you talk about. You've talked about the hydroxki versus the Oreo. You've talked about escalators. <laughs> You've talked about bathtubs. You've talked about changing lanes without vision. There's so much eclectic magic in your show. How do you come up with the ideas about what you want to cover?
2: Oh, the ideas are so easy because they're everywhere. And if you're just sort of attuned to, like you know, like having some idea of, like, oh, I wonder why that is the way it is, you can usually find something. I feel like the world is full of ideas. I mean, that's why when the show, when it was presented to me as this idea of doing an architecture show, and I wanted to make it more broadly a design show, I just felt like I could do it forever. <laughs> and I'm a really project-oriented. The other part of of uh, being an independent producer, the way I was, was I would work on a show for a few weeks or a year and I'd leave because that's what I did. I just started new shows and I'd take off. But when I saw this project, I thought I could keep doing this because I could apply that lens to almost anything. And that is why I can keep doing it.
0: The last question I want to ask you is actually a series of questions that you asked on a recent show. And part of the reason I want to ask you these questions is because I want to know the answer. And part of the reason is because I think that the writing is just beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's poetry. So I want to read some of your own writing to you and ask you also to answer these questions. So on a recent show, you asked, what would you redesign completely? Would everything simply evolve back to the way it is now? Would U.S. currency still be inexplicably uniform in color and size? Would we get rid of cars if we started over? My guess is even the poorly designed and inefficient objects would make a comeback. Because it just might be your dining room table, your crappy, wobbly, I swear, honey, I'll fix it soon, I promise it might be that dining room table that makes you happy. So, Roman, I think that's just gorgeous. It's everything design is supposed to do. But I want to also ask you to answer. Do you think (laughs) everything would simply evolve back to the way it is now?
2: No. What's great about asking those questions is I don't have to answer them. (laughs) But I
0: want you to answer them now on my show.
2: (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sorry. uh, The... uh, One of the the secrets to this show is that I think it works because I don't have to come down to a definitive answer to those subjects, but I'll, I'll do my best. I think that if you sort of rewound the tape and played it again, it wouldn't play out exactly the same. But I do believe that the impulse of what is good design for some people and good design for other people would come at loggerheads and they don't always conform I did this piece about the cul de sac, you know, the sort of the hallmark of suburbia. Yes. And the point of the piece to me was that, yes, demonstrably, it is horrible design. It's bad for space. It is bad for, you know, connecting people and grids, and it's inefficient and it costs municipalities money. But the people that want to live there, are not looking for that. They're looking for a place where their kids can run out on the street and not get hit by a car. And they're not idiots for wanting that. And so there will always be different impulses where somebody is just keen into a different aspect of the design of the world that is important to them at a different time. So there's something about the way that when you read about, you read like Massive Change, for example, the Bruce Mellon book or something, you read it and you just go, Man we got these problems solved. We just have to give it to the right people like and there could be a monorail everywhere and there could be great public transportation and there could be you know systems in place. We have to recognize that a really nicely designed world yields a lot of your independence and you have to trust the designer to be there with you and to have your interests and and to let go of some of the things that are important to you, like your car, for example and if the designers of the world are smart and they mean well and i think they do that can work out really well but if you know designers in the world interact with the bureaucracies of the world and the greed of the world and the inefficiencies of the world you know something that it's designed for one purpose you know breaks down in another scenario so there'll always be these things that run against each other so in that sense it would be very similar like if you rewound the tape and and plate it again, I think that the world will look very similar with its inefficiencies and bad design. But I don't think it'd be exactly the same.
0: Well, as long as we had those wobbly dining room tables that make us happy, I think that would be okay. (laughs) Roman, thank you so much for being on Design Matters
2: thank you so much Debbie, I appreciate it
0: you can hear 99% Invisible on KALW or just subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and check out new stories at 99%invisible.org I'd like to thank you for listening and remember, we can talk about making a difference we can make a difference, or we can do both I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon
2: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Randy Ortica and research by Jeff Close and Lisa Grant. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.